My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. On August the 1st, 1970, Dr Dietrich Burkle, Assistant Keeper of Natural History at Glasgow Museum, made Scottish sea angling history by deliberately targeting and bringing ashore the first ever poor beagle shark from Scottish waters, with a fish of £173 taken from the Mull of Galloway. There had previously been reported shark sightings there, plus the occasional brief encounter with sharks snatching at anglers' hooked fish. And also, it has to be said, quite a lot of scepticism and even ridicule aimed at those who not only believed it could be done, but who would ultimately quieten the doubters. Despite the fact that Dietrich Burkle was the man fighting the fish on that day, the success of the venture was very much a team effort, involving boatman Bob Hogg along with his sons Harry and Jim, Roger Reynolds, Brian Hewitt and Joe Contramas, the story of which was well documented at the time. Back in 2011, just after the 40th anniversary of that catch, interest on one of the National Angling Forums unexpectedly resulted in a front-page story in the Galloway Gazette entitled Exclusive, Truth Behind Record Shark, written by the columnist Peter Foster and based on conversations with members of the Hogg family who were present on that day and had, after 40 years of silence, suddenly been moved by reported feelings of guilt and integrity to tell a totally different version of the story, completely at odds with the original report. It's now April 2013, and returning to Scotland from his home in Germany for a week's fishing for common skate in the Sound of Jura, another species he has history with through the Scottish tagging programme initiated by him in the early 1970s, Dietrich has invited me to join up with him and on your mark Skippery and Burrett and has agreed to talk about his poor beagle catch and put the record straight regarding what is after all a piece of Scottish sea angling history. Now in the run up to this interview you provided me with copies of both a relevant issue of the Galloway Gazette and subsequent correspondence sent to them by yourself so I am well briefed on all the relevant claims. Can we now, to set the record straight once and for all, discuss in detail here everything relating to the subject, starting with the fundamental question, did you, fishing with rod and line, catch and bring ashore a poor beagle shark weighing £173 off the Mull of Galloway back in August 1970? The fair angling, yes, I was hook and bait. I was played to the side of the boat and when I was to be gaffed to attach it to the boat the gaff struck the line and broke the part of the trace and the fish started drifting away from the boat and it was just a couple of strokes with the, with the oars and we were back at the side of the fish now okay that's, that's a part if our claim is made on fair angling as a record then it would not have been a fair record, which always stipulates that when the fish is taken to the side of the boat, the hook must be in the fish and the fish must be attached to the rod. Before we start to get too embroiled in the events of the day, it might help to set the scene leading up to the event by looking at some of the historical build-up prior to the catch itself. Well, the reason why that tent was made to catch a shark, we'd been down there to fish for tope. And, okay, topa shark as well, but the question was big sharks, poor beetle. And Bob Hogg, the lobsterman who was out there practically every day, said 
he had, I reckon he'd seen Paul Rigo, and the locals laughed at him. So Brian Hewitt, Roger Reynolds and myself, we said we'd come down every weekend and fish for shark, you know, put a big bait out on a float to see if we, if we could prove him right. And on August the 1st, the two went over to Port William to the Tope Festival, and I went down to the Mull of Galloway uh, with Bob Hogg, his two sons, and another person called Joe Contrimas. And we went out in two 15 or 16 foot boats and fished all day, and then towards the end of the day, uh, around about four or there, we went down below the lighthouse in the race with the tidiest turning, and suddenly the float started moving towards the boat and I looked in the water and there was a big fish towing it. And that was a shark. Took an hour to play before we got it to the side of the boat, as I said. And then as it was to be gaffed, the gaff struck the line and actually broke the trace where the little bit of trace which had been standing on the sleeve had been cut off. And there was a nick in the main line. That's what so it was either a question of just letting it go, and if we went ashore and said yes, you know, we'd had a big fish, nobody would have believed it and we took it ashore. Now obviously, I've researched all around the subject, as you might expect in preparation, and one of the notes I have here is of a supposed claim by Bob Hogg of having seen mako sharks around the mole. What, if any light, can you shed on that? I've no idea... I mean, there was a lot and lot, lots of talk about, you know, fish jumping, okay. I've seen fish jumping, there was the basking sharks. <clears throat> I can't imagine that Makos would be there. It's a bit far north. Okay, Makos in the channel, west channel. Yes, but not so far north. And in those days, uh, climatic conditions were a bit different also. Why should they come, go through the Irish Sea or go around... Ireland and come in and do. Tell us a little more now about the history behind the attempt by the group and also the setting up of the Mull of Galloway Big Game Club. At that time we had founded or got very interested in coast fishing in Scotland, mainly pike and carp. And there was one chap, Roger Reynolds, who always disappeared in the summer. You know, when we had a meeting or went up to Loch Lomond pike fish, Roger wasn't there. And then in the first autumn meeting, Roger suddenly appeared again. And we said, where have you been? And he smiled and said, yep, been down to Loose Bay, catching taupe and bass and things like that. And of course, I was very interested in these fish also to try and get specimen as Scottish fauna for the museum. And I went down and had a holiday in a caravan at uh, Sands of Loose. Went down to... East Tarbet, and I was horrified to see so many big, beautiful fish lying dead on the shore. And that's when Bob Hogg appeared and I started talking to him, and that was involved at the beginning of the sort of search or the attempt to catch a shark. And that is a poor beetle. So what was the general planning behind the attempt, which obviously didn't produce a result straight away? How many blanks had you drawn already by that stage? It was about half a summer, five or six 
times and I mean I, I, the planning as it was I was just lucky you know we couldn't really say today I will go and catch a pod beetle we went out and out and out again until the fish was uh, landed you've given us quite a detailed account of the happenings on the day the decision to fish, the hook-up, and ultimately the breaking of the line with the gaff before finally securing the fish, all of which was a good result. But shortly afterwards, according to the Galloway Gazette, things started to become a little strained. No, not at that time really. When we came ashore, there were quite a number of people there, and I had phoned my wife, and she had phoned Brian Hewitt, who'd arrived from Port William, as soon as he got in, his wife informed him that I'd caught a shark and he just jumped in the car and came drove all the way back from Hamilton down to Loose Bay. I had said to Bob Hogg, the fisherman, that undoubtedly this will make the headlines and, you know, we'll use that to put the area on the map. A friend of mine came down and lifted the shark up for the museum in Glasgow and on Monday morning, I got a phone call from Border Television in Carlisle asking me to come down. They wanted to do an interview. And I said, OK, I'll come down, but only if Bob Hogg, the skipper, is there as well. Because I'd said to him, whatever happens with me, you were the guy who took me to the shark, and so on. And they tried to find him, but he apparently was somewhere at sea and couldn't be reached. So I said, OK, you've got Monday evening, reach him, and I'll come down on Tuesday. And they said, no, that news is no news on Tuesday, it's news today. So I went down and did the interview, it was about three quarters of an hour, all sorts of aspects, and I always mentioned his name as a man whose boat I was in and the reason why we'd done it and everything else, and I gave him all credit in the capture of the, of the shark, his part in it. And the bro- it was actually broadcast and cut down to about the usual thing, you know, five minutes. And the following weekend when I went down, I felt quite proud of myself, you know, this interview and everything. And I got into Drummore and, whoa, as soon as he saw me, you know, you bastard, excuse me. <laughs> I said, what's up? You promised to take me to that interview. And I said, yes. And I had intended to, and I'd given them your name and everything else, but you were at sea and they couldn't contact you. And they said that if I didn't come down on the Monday, they would just skip it. And I think it was always better to do the interview. You got credit in it and it should do some, you know, do you some good. But uh, the thing was that our friendship was bust up because of that. He, he never forgave me for saying I would take him and then not having that, and he wouldn't accept the explanation I'd given him why I'd gone down there on my own. Jumping forward now to 2011 and the Galloway Gazette, which I know you had an exchange of correspondence with, how and why did all that come about? The funny thing was, I was surfing on the internet looking for pictures of sharks, and I came across one, a picture of a shark hanging from a sort of gantry, and a little girl standing beside the fish, and there was a panel in the background, Milbro Tackle, 
and my name on it and the shark and everything else. And the question was, can anybody say anything about this picture? And somebody had already answered it, you know, saying it was a poor regal caught on the 1st of August 1970 at the Mall of Galloway, etc., etc. And that started off a thread on the world sea fishing. And to begin with, it was quite... <laughs> to begin with, it was quite neutral and just sort of facts. And then Brian Hewitt published a long, long article in that, you know, saying he was correspondent to the then-going, I think, Angler's Mail. And it's very gradually took a, a funny sort of turn, slagging turn, where I was the bad one. And the end of it was actually the, an article published in the Galloway Gazette with a front-page headlines, hook, line, and a real stinker and a photograph of the shark hanging from the gantry and myself standing beside it. Now, according to that story, which I have read, your interest in the shark potential around the Mull of Galloway was actually stimulated by the others involved, particularly Roger Reynolds and Brian Hewitt, whose initial idea the attempt had been, and that they were now trying to distance themselves from what had happened on the day of the catch. There wasn't any one particular person who was a driving force. We were a trio... And we had gone down a couple of times together, Roger in his own boat and Brian Hewitt and myself together with Bob Hogg. But then they had a, an interest. Brian Hewitt was also a match angler and he had an interest in competition angling. And the Loose Bay Tope Festival run from Port William on the other side. That was the one they went to. And I said, no, I'm not coming. Uh, I said I'd promised to go down to Loose Bay to the Mill of Galloway whenever I could to see if we can catch a, a shark, a poor weedle, and I did that. As I understand it, this was in the company of Joe Contramus and one of Bob Hogg's sons. Uh, we went out in two boats very early in the morning, Bob Hogg. I think it was Jimmy Hogg, myself in one boat, and Joe Contramus and another of Bob's sons in a second boat and we fished all day sort of between the Mulhead and uh, Maryport and then towards the end of the day we went right below the lighthouse and sat in a back eddy and the mackerel was out on the balloon and suddenly I saw a big shark in the water swimming past the boat and there was a red balloon following <laughs> and that was a fish. So despite what's been written in the press and on the internet, you're quite happy with the fact that it was a team effort, with you being the one fortunate enough to hook into that first fish. You know, I mean, the whole thing was that at that time, Bob Hogg knew generally, he, he himself wasn't a keen sea angler. He did a bit of sea fishing and that. And if I may skip 40 years on, the person who now does the sea charters in there, he is somebody who really knows the area. And if, you, you know, if you're fishing top in one spot and it's, there's nothing doing, you'll go somewhere else. And, and that was a, a huge difference. And if, if I had caught the shark with Ian Burrett, I could have said, right, he was a skipper who took me to the shark. But in, in that 40 years ago, 
tie here, try there, and it was just luck. I was lucky. And at that stage, with the exception of Bob Hogg, of course, whose nose had been put out of joint with the way the publicity had gone, everyone else involved was still looking at it as having been a successful team effort. It was only when the Galloway Gazette article appeared 40 years later that cracks were reported as appearing to show. So how did all of that come about? I don't know. Obviously, I think if one reads a bit between the lines and all the things that have been published on the internet, and also in that article, you can read between the lines there was a certain amount with quite a bit of envy. Very much later, you know, 40 years later, it... Uh, grew and sort of matured. To be honest, it sounds like it's been festering for quite a while because the article holds up the members of the Hogg family present as people moulded from truth and integrity, then goes on to quote a very different version of the day which had not previously been reported in the intervening 40 years. I don't actually know if um, Bob Hogg... I mean, he was a man with quite a temper, but I I don't think he was the driving force behind all that because he died many years before. If there was any driving force, I think that came from the attack from Jimmy Hogg, who'd been in the boat, and uh, Brian Hewitt. Because Brian didn't catch a shark, I did. The report also makes a number of allegations which I know you wish to refute. One in particular being that you had stopped visiting the area after the shark catch. That is absolutely untrue. Because I got, my, I got my own small boat, took it down there and uh, used to go down Friday evening or very early Saturday morning, go to the pier, look out and say, oh, I, it's a bit rough, but I've come all this way, I'll go out. And then the night was spent in a tent or in a, sleeping in a minivan. And I tried to fish, you know, whenever I could, and uh, in fact, I think one of the last trips must have been, oh, June or, or July 1979, before I went emigrated to Germany. The thing was, we actually had a caravan down at uh, Sandhead and got a bit lazy. Went down to the Man of Galloway and I went, ah, it's not going It'll be better with us tomorrow. And in the time when... The, the, the 150 mile drive down from Glasgow got down there. Ah, it's not looking too good, but uh, Christ, we've come all this way. <laughs> the article also says that Bob Hogg eventually turned his back on sea fishing in disgust at what the report claims had happened on the day. It wasn't had nothing to do with the with the shark and you know and all the controversy, which there really wasn't at that time. The reason why he turned his back on rod and line fishing. The Mull of Galloway Big Game Club was founded and competitions were held. And apparently people were putting lead into the fish to try and, you know, win. And it wasn't a case of going out and the members of the club trying for big top or more poor little shark. It was just general fishing in the end. So the name Big Game Club was, was a fancy name that had nothing really to do with the activities of the club. There were trophies and everything, and it was just a, the usual type of fishing club with all the activities and trophies, etc. 
So do you feel any responsibility for Bob Hogg's sour grapes? And with hindsight, could you or should you have handled the press aspect of things any differently? No, I, I, I mean, the, the real publicity was the fact, the interview with Border Television. And what else? If I'd said, no, I'm not coming down because he's not there, then they would have just said, you know, a shark was caught and that was it, la da Nothing more, or a few details. And they would not have made the broadcast. OK, the broadcast wasn't national. It was Northern ITV, out from Carlisle. And, you know, people who listened to the broadcast heard his name several times. And I think that, if I hadn't, there would, would have been nothing really. Looking back at the whole history-making episode now, what are your thoughts regarding the various people involved? and the way in which a distorted view is now what most people will actually remember of it. I, mean, I, I was surprised and sorry, you know, that this sort of attitude appeared after uh, virtually 40 years, because at the time, you know, we were still very friendly, we'd still go out together and fish together, and there was no animosity, really. And why after all 40 years? Okay, maybe, possibly one thing. I became fish recorder for the Scottish Federation of Sea Anglers. And I also became fish recorder for the European Federation of Sea Anglers. Because somebody had my name and my comments on the fact that there were fish on the record list, which I said, no, I, I don't believe that. And okay, in the article itself, there was mention made that I really wasn't a zoologist or an ichthyologist but I was a, a geologist, paleontologist. But, I mean, there are many people with great knowledge which they have acquired and they haven't studied. So I honestly don't know what, what they were trying to get at 40 years after the event. For what it's worth, knowing journalism as I do, I personally don't see how the Shark Report could have been handled any different. Yeah, it probably was disappointing to some of the others but not as disappointing as suspect, there's no recognition at all. The only person really who can be given any credit is Bob Hogg. The other person who's mentioned in there, Joe Contrimus, was a very, very peculiar person. Despite what's gone on, nobody can take away the fact that this was a history-making event not only for the area concerned and the people involved, but for Scotland as a whole, as this ultimately triggered interest in Scotland's poor beagle potential elsewhere. Yours was the more southerly Scottish catch, and what would eventually follow was the current world all-tackle record of £507 from Scotland's most northerly point, not to mention other catches too from even further north, up around the Shetland Isles. Yeah, I mean, it showed that there were poor beagle shark in Scottish waters, that was known anyway because of the commercial catches, but that they also could be caught with rotten line. And the next person who, in actual fact, started catching poor beetle was a man called Peter White, who was a, an oil engineer up in the Shetlands and had his own boat of uh, Sunbra Head. And he really smashed the record of the first catch, I think a 420 and a 450. You know, they were really big fish. There is actually a link between Sumbrahead and the Mull of Galloway in the fact that both create highly disturbed tidal interruptions. Do you think that this could be a factor in attracting poor beagle sharks? 
Well, I know that Sunborough Head the Sharks were there in the autumn, possibly as, if you can say, sort of breeding aggregations. It is known, for instance, in the middle of the North Sea uh, a number of years ago, some Danish fishermen caught Borbeagle, and then they went out and they caught more Borbeagle, and in the end, I think they caught over 350 Borbeagle in a very, very small area, and possibly destroyed a part of the North Sea population. And Sunborough Head seemed to be the same sort of thing because of the, the fishermen who take me out said when they go out in the autumn to catch their winter fish, it's quite often, you know, they're getting hard up on the hand lines. As they come up, there's poor beagle going and stripping the fish off. The evening that he took me out fishing up there was one you know, it was mountains of water. I was lying on a deck, and this great big shetland that's standing over me. You know, feeling real, laddie. No, not feeling well. There were no haddock, no poor beagle. Does that suggest a local link, then, between the haddock and the poor beagle sharks? Congregations of fish. Yeah. Whether it's, uh, well, it's the same, if you think, up at uh, north of Scotland with large numbers of coalies. And uh, poor beagle coming in there. Going back to the geographical link mentioned earlier, another shared aspect by the two areas is now the lack of poor beagle's presence since their initial discovery. No, well, I think Sunborough Head, very, very difficult waters. I mean, if you think of the Mulligan away with its tide race, that is uh, nothing compared with this tide race and the waves you get at Sunborough Head. And the locals who Again, it's a case of, uh, if they go out fishing, it's fish for eating. And, you know, catching sharks is not really interesting because I I don't think, you know, you would, uh, you know, if you got a two-hour, three-hundred-pound shark, that's a lot of eating. Given that very few polar beagles are ever caught around the Mull of Galloway and Burrow Head on the other side of Loose Bay and the fact that none have been reported in any sense there for a very long time, can you see a repeat of your fish ever taking place at some stage in the near future? I don't know that uh, possibly other species, if, if the, the climate changes, which are supposed to be happening, but we keep forgetting that if it gets warmer sooner or later, if the North Atlantic Drift or Gulf Stream stops flowing, we're in trouble here because we're at the level of uh, Labrador and it's going to be very, very cold here. So I don't know, you know, it's uh, what can really happen. So despite sea temperatures on a global basis rising, polar ice cap melt and its effect on the Gulf Stream could actually see us having much lower temperatures than we do at present. Yeah. The whole thing is that uh, they now know what drives the North Atlantic drift. It's a fact that uh, water va- evaporates and the sea water gets heavier and sinks down. But if you start getting the ice melting in Greenland, you're going to get fresh water lying on top of salt water. There's no evaporation of, of the salt, of the water from the salt water, so that will possibly stop the North Atlantic drift. And then, you know, we're really getting cold water, because we are at about the level of of Labrador. 
What do you think is the future of Scottish shark fishing and the efforts to stimulate population numbers of all Scotland's cartilaginous species by people such as Ian Burrett and Sasakan? Or are you so far removed from this now living in Germany that most of this has pretty much passed you by? Well, Ian with his attitude, and well, if I can go back, uh, Bob Hogg's attitude in, his, in the end was the same, that when he took people out, they caught taupe, and he didn't allow them to take the ashore, because he also realised that his future, as far as recreational angling, lay in the fact that there were taupe here. Now, Ian has been doing exactly the same thing, and... If commercial fishing would cease in certain areas, I think an increase in the population of fish could get more sea anglers in, which would bring more money into the area than the commercials make. Because the commercials don't leave the money in the area where they're trawling. They're taking it away. Recreational angling, okay, even if you catch a lot of cod, you don't need to take them away. Take one take two, but the rest. For me, that my attitude always has been, I like fish, I like to see fish, and the only way I can see fish is if I catch them. So with Sasakin fighting its corner on behalf of both the fish and of anglers, fish stock should at least maintain the status quo in Scottish waters, and could, fingers crossed, as more victories like the common skate and poor big legislation come along, even see a slow but sustained recovery over time. It could be if the attitude from the people who have the the real say, if they realise that recreational angling has a greater economic value than commercial fishing. And your fish from August 1970, will that remain the local target to beat? Or might someone who follows your example at some stage in the future possibly come ashore with photographs of a poor beagle that's even bigger than that? Not if they're not fishing for them. (laughs) It takes quite a bit of time and money, obviously. And if you go out, even now when I went to go down to the Mill of Galloway, I fish for taupe, but I've always got a, a, a large bait on a balloon drifting in about 10, 15 feet of water. So if a shark does come along and maybe attempts to take the bait, because I've seen one other large fish being taken, and that was Roger Reynolds was fishing near me, and he got a fish on, started playing it, and suddenly it went dead. And he just sat there for about half an hour, and then he brought up the head of a conga, and the rest was gone. That obviously was a shark. That's the Paul Beagle interview concluded. In a few minutes' time, we'll both be heading down to Crinan to meet up with Ian Burrett for a day afloat after another big fish species he was involved in way back when, that being the common skate. That actually is another story in its own right, which I hope we'll cover separately before going our different ways. But there's a certain irony in the fact that it was you who started the skate tagging programme, which we're all benefiting from today, which has now passed into the hands of Sasakan, with Ian doing much of the actual tagging work. Well, there were always you know, lots of places with common skate, and a number of these were fished out commercially and by recreational anglers. And it's nice to see that an effort is being made to preserve these stocks. And the only way you can preserve a stock is to find out what the size of the stock is. And the work that Ian is doing and a number of other 
skippers on the west coast of Scotland. Catching and tagging the fish, I think, is a fantastic thing. And it's also credit to a number of anglers who come and do such fishing because in the end the only trophy that they have is the ones that they take home in the head, the memory. I mean, basically, what, what, what do you do with a 100-pound, 150-pound skate? Yeah. So it's, it's nice to see, you know, the sort of attitudes, that there's a change in attitudes towards conservational fishing. So there you have it, the final word, the definitive version straight from the horse's mouth. My thanks then to Dietrich Berkel for being so frank and open regarding the subject and for recording another piece of real angling history for the archives. Mm-hmm.